You know, I was thinking about the journey that early settlers in our nation took and the journey westward. How, how strange that must have been to be compelled by the promise of something they'd never seen. There wasn't any internet, wasn't any live video feed as to what was going on out west. They're just stories. Maybe some pictures, but mostly just stories. Stories of opportunity, stories of danger. Just stories. And those early settlers, they just were compelled by a promise. They believed the story. They believed the story, and they followed the journey. And following the journey, then, they established what we have. You know, as we think about the journey, the series that I'm bringing to you, you think about the impact your decision to be on this journey will have for others. If the Lord tarries, if the Lord doesn't come back, what could happen for generations, next generation? See, our decisions don't, about the journey don't just affect us, do they? They affect people immediately around us and perhaps in generations beyond us. Well, the journey continues this morning as we look at the next uh, segment. So far, we've looked at Abraham, who journeyed from obscurity to identity. He was nobody, and then he was the father of many nations, the very one whose name created a, a lineage for Jesus Christ to come to us. We look at Moses, and his obedience to follow God and leading the Israelites out of Egypt and the journey from bondage to freedom. And what a big part of the heart of God that is for us, that he wants us to journey out of our bondage into freedom. I'm grateful for the freedom that I have in Christ so far. Anybody with me on that? I still have a ways to go. Anybody with me on that? Last week, Elijah, as we looked at his journey as he ran away from Ahab and Jezebel and the journey from stress to a place of rest. And how essential it is for us on this journey to write into our lives opportunity to get off the path, to take the rest stop, and to spend time with the Lord so he can speak to us. Today I want to continue the journey in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And in this passage, there's a journey from mediocrity to divine purpose. When Jesus is walking along the shores of Galilee and he sees these four guys and they're fishing, Peter and Andrew and then James and John, and they're, they're just living a mediocre lifestyle, and Jesus comes along to them, walking beside. He saw two brothers, first Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and it says they were casting a net. They were, they were doing the job. They were digging the ditch. And Jesus said, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll move you from what you're doing, which seems so mediocre, to give you divine purpose. It says that once they left the nets and followed him, and then he went on a little further down the shore, it says, and he saw two other brothers, James and John. And uh, they, were, they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, and they were also 
fishing, they were actually preparing their nets, which was a big part of fishing because these things were getting tangled up and coming apart all the time. And so they were, they were getting ready to do the thing. They were doing something probably more mundane than hauling in the fish. They were just getting ready to fish. And uh, Jesus called them, and it says immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The context of this passage here is that, hey, we're in the New Testament now. We've crossed the line. The first three passages in the journey came from the Old Testament, which of course has power and value. But I don't know, there's something about turning that page where I feel like I'm home. You know what I'm talking about? And so we're in the New Testament. Jesus hasn't died for anybody's sins yet. He's just here. He's just here. And he's doing what the Father sent him to do. And this is really a defining moment for all of human history, if you think about the context of this very passage. That every world religion who does not even honor the name of Jesus will tell you what year it is (laughs) by his life. The whole world's calendar just hinges on the year of our Lord. And that's a defining moment in all of history. It's the gospel beginnings where we are here. And the story that we see here is that Jesus is opening up his school of discipleship. This was common for rabbis to do. We visited this before some time ago. But this was a common thing for a rabbi to do, was to open a school of discipleship and to have an ongoing school of discipleship. Well, this is Jesus' first year, his first class of disciples, but he's opening this up. He was seen as a rabbi. People understood him as a rabbi. Although he had no formal training, he wasn't the son of a rabbi, he had no formal training, they couldn't help but notice, even when he was about 12 years old, how wise he was and how deep he was in the things of God. You know, it helps to be a son, I get that, but even society was recognizing that Jesus was a rabbi, and so it looked kind of normal to them that Jesus would eventually begin to open up his school of discipleship, would gather around him certain disciples so that he could teach them, and they could continue the heritage of the Jewish religion, is what they understood that he was doing, but The story is is that he was doing it with all the wrong people. He was picking all the wrong guys. Because commonly, the rabbi would walk along, and remember, the rabbi would live in this community, and there wasn't a lot of travel in that day, so you knew a lot of people. And so you had your eyes on little Obadiah since he was about five, because he was, you know, singing this little light of mine really well and stuff like that, and... And so you kind of had your eye on this kid or that kid coming up. And then one of the things Jewish boys did in particular was that they memorized massive amounts of what to us is now the Old Testament. Massive amounts. Massive amounts. Some of them what we would consider now to be the majority of the Old Testament. What? Massive amounts of scripture they committed to memory during the time of their life when their minds are soft and pliable and open to remembering things. Right, Dennis? Yeah. And, <laughs> and so the rabbis would move around and they would be noticing which of these kids were, were, were excelling. And they, 
they pretty much, you know, they were scouting is what they were doing, and they pretty much had who they were going to draft before, before the day. They knew this. And uh, so they would go around, and they would see these kids, and, you know, most of the Jewish parents would, come on, you've got to learn this, you gotta, so that you could grow up and be a rabbi, because, uh, after all, my son's a rabbi. That's what you want. And so the kids that excelled were chosen when they became young adults. And the ones that didn't excel were delivered into some kind of apprenticeship in a common trade of the day. It could have been fishing. It could have been tanning. That was the worst job to get, to be a tanner and to have to take the hides of things and the stinky stuff. And nobody wanted to hang out with the tanner, but worse yet, you might end up a shepherd. <laughs> or even worse, a tax collector. Because to do that, you had to sell out to the Romans. You were hated by your own people. And so, these were, this was the leftovers. This was a leftover group. The people who would never be considered in a school of discipleship and Jesus is walking along, and the first four guys he picks are fishermen. I mean, these would have been passed over by every respectable rabbi and said, oh, you guys, good luck with your fishing. But I mean, not only did he want fishermen, he wanted to teach them how to fish. Hey, you're throwing, you know you guys are on the wrong side of the boat? You, I mean, we get to that part in the Bible where they're just, they're just fishing on the wrong side of the boat. <laughs> but here he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I don't know how that would have fallen on them. It's like, ah, what's he talking about? But if we look at the Gospel of John, we see that they had already, already knew about him. This, this wouldn't have been their first encounter with Jesus. Remember, he moved about in that area and he was a very controversial personality. And, uh, and, and in the Gospel of John, Andrew in particular already saw Jesus. And so there was lots of talk. They knew who Jesus was. But they never in a million years would have expected him to stop by their boat. I mean, in a million years. Just the way Zacchaeus in a million years never would have expected him to stop at the base of the tree that he was up and say, Zacchaeus, come down here because I'm going to your house today. All these crowds of great people, and Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is, is, is picked. I know, hallelujah is right. I'm feeling that. And the point of all of this is, seems pretty obvious, doesn't it, is that Jesus interrupts their mediocrity to invite them in to a life of divine purpose. He just rushes in, boom, and he interrupts their mediocrity, to invite them to a life of divine purpose. And so the journey for us, as we consider these scriptures, we see that it continues. It continues with a journey from mediocrity to divine purpose, from Bush League to the NFL. You know, it, it, there's just this sudden invitation 
to be elevated, to change. Now, you know, before you get too excited about that, it means you're probably going to wash a lot of feet and probably end up dead at the end of it, but this is the invitation of Jesus out of, out of mediocre living into a powerful awareness, sense of divine purpose and being used by God. You know, Henry David Thoreau said that most men live lives of what? Quiet desperation. That we live through our lives just one day to the next. And how did I get this job? I remember I wanted it when I was a kid or I just sort of stumbled on it. And am I stuck in, you know. So that's a pretty common thing. To be, to be living through, what, kind of muddling through life in a, with a sense of quiet desperation. If I can just make it to whatever age or whatever event or whatever seniority or whatever, if I could just make it to there and we just keep sort of propelling ourselves forward with these kind of thoughts, don't we? Yes or no? That's true. And Jesus comes into this room right now and he interrupts that. He doesn't want anybody to live either quietly or desperately. He wants us to live boldly with a sense of his divine purpose for our lives. This is part of the journey. This is part of the road you're on, is to be used powerfully by God in your world. You may go to work at the same place. That I don't know. But everything changes when you see your life as wrapped up in the divine purposes of God. That's what was happening with these guys. They were uh, just suddenly interrupted from what they thought they would be doing for the rest of their lives. And they were suddenly, suddenly brought in to the school of discipleship. These are the people Jesus picked. And uh, there's so much that's wrong about it. I, you can almost hear them saying, Lord, this is not a good time. Lord, this is just not a good time. And isn't that the way of the Lord? Anybody know what I'm talking about? This is not a good time, Lord. I mean, if you look at this, it was the wrong time. In verse 18 of our text, it says, they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. That's not the point that you want to be interrupted. (laughs) They were casting their net. They were doing the thing they were purposed to do. They were busy. They were busy. And the Lord said, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. That was the wrong timing. That, it's just the way of the Lord, isn't it? He knows something. He must know something we don't know. Is that possible? And it was the wrong time. And what was their response? Did they say, Lord, this is not a good time? What, what did they do? How fast did they follow him? At once, immediately. <laughs> There's... There's no indication that they even pulled the net out. They just left. It was the wrong time. It was also the wrong place. I mean, verse 21 of our text, it says, Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his, his, uh, his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee. That's, that's the wrong place. Lord, we need to make this decision not in front of our dad. I mean, their dad was one of the guys who was passed over. He was a fisherman. 
They were in an apprenticeship. James and John were likely very, very young. I mean, as evidenced by the fact that they were still with their dad. They were in the apprenticeship. They were learning how to be fishermen. They were preparing the nets. And their dad was, had lived his life as a fisherman, passed over, had his own apprenticeship, somehow figured out how to drag enough of these stinking things in and get them to market so that he could feed these two boys. And then it was going to be passed on. And, you know, there's got to be just a little bit of sense of pride in that. A dad out in the boat with his boys. Yeah, I know you didn't get picked by a rabbi, but we're going to have a good life, fellas. You can do this. I'm going to show you everything I know. (laughs) This is what may have been going on in the boat when Jesus comes along and says, Hey, why don't you guys follow me? That's the wrong place. That's the wrong place, wrong time, wrong place. And uh, what was their response? I forget. (laughs) Verse 22. That's pretty fast immediately. Zebedee's still in the boat, wondering where his boys went. They just, boom. They didn't say goodbye. They didn't ask. They didn't say, thanks for all you've done, Dad. They just went. But I think more than anything, these were the wrong guys. These are, these are the wrong guys, as I alluded to already. In verse 18, it says, for they were fishermen. Fishermen. How could, a, how could a fisherman qualify for a school of discipleship? Any school, let alone with the Son of God. Wait just a second. These guys, probably when their mates were, were their, their schoolmates were memorizing Scripture, they were fishing. They were playing hooky. Hooky. And they were fishing. These are the wrong guys. James and John were really the wrong guys. And then Mark chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus gave them a nickname by Jesus. Do you know what that nickname was? Yes? The Sons of Thunder. And it wasn't because they had gas. These were rowdy guys. These were rowdy kids. <laughs> these, were, these were ADD kids, pre-Ritalin ADD kids. Yep. Sons of Thunder. Rich, you're just taking great encouragement in all of this, aren't you? These are the guys Jesus picked, the Sons of Thunder. This may have been why they were passed over, because they were just so unruly. They were so... They were so uncivilized. These are the wrong guys. Everything about the call of God can be wrong in our lives, right? It's the wrong time, Lord. You know, maybe when the kids get raised or we pay the house off or, hello? Or I don't know what's on your list. Do you have a list? And I'm not saying that those aren't important features in our lives. Of course they are. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus showing up and saying, 
do you want to continue to live this mediocre middle-class lifestyle? Or do you want to be elevated to a place of divine purpose? And at the end of the day, it all boils down to something we just call raw obedience. Right? Because you get that. I know you get that. I know this stuff happens. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I, I know this stuff happens to you. I know that you're sometimes here, you're sometimes somewhere else, you're listening to a podcast or reading a book or reading the Bible or talking to a home group or something like that, and you're like, ah, jeez, stop, Lord. I, I can't do that. It's, it's the wrong time. I know you do that. Raise your hand if you do that. <laughs> See? Eleven honest people in the room. I know you get a stirring about, I should do that. I, I should do that, but I'm scared. I should do that, but I'm nervous. I'm sh- I should do that, but, but, and then there's something in the blank, right? I, I know I should do that. I don't know, but I don't think I can. I don't even think Peter and Andrew and James and John even knew what they were being called to. Fishers of men? What, are you throwing nets on these guys? What are, what are we going to do? I mean, what, what is he even meaning? Because, see, proselyte evangelism was not a big part of what rabbis did. You needed to be born into the Jewish tradition to be a Jew. You could convert in, which is what John the Baptist was likely doing when he was baptizing people. He was out there doing something called proselyte baptism where a Gentile could come and kind of apply for Jewishness and they had to go through a, a, a process and then they would be baptized in. And that's likely why John the Baptist was so ticked off when, you know, the Jews came and going, what are you doing here, you know? And, and we're sons of Abraham. And they make that big fuss about being sons of Abraham. That's how they said it, too. They said it just like that. We're sons of Abraham. And what did John say? John, he said, we can make sons of Abraham out of rocks if we wanted to, as evidenced by what I'm doing. <laughs> this is how the scripture goes. Just giving it to you in my version. I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, the evangelism thing. So Jesus, though, his, his point of call is evangelism. His point of call is evangelism. Come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they grew to learn what he meant by that, to go and make disciples of all nations. The point of call of Jesus Christ into the school of discipleship is evangelism. The reason we're called into divine purpose is so that more will be saved. And so there's something stirring on inside of you. Some of you, maybe you're in a, a little break in between stirrings because you've managed it. You've managed to escape it. Things have grown a little quiet. But I think when the Word of God comes to us, we have exactly four options. When the Word of God stirs inside of you, your first option is to simply reject it. Forget it. I'm not doing that. I'm not a fanatic. I'm not doing it. And it's amazing how bold we can be with God, isn't it? You want to know why? Because the Bible says that God is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. It's being stored. 
So we get away with a lot. A lot of rebellion. We can reject it. The second thing we can do is rationalize it. Well, I know that's what that meant then. But you know what? This is really now. I know that the Bible's pretty clear about that. But here's why it doesn't really apply to me. That's the second thing we can do. Third thing we can do is to reconcile it with our lives. We can go, okay, I'm hearing the word of God. I'm sensing the stirring of God. I'm going to integrate that into my life. I'm going to be that person. I'm going to fish for men. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do that. And we integrate it. We reconcile it with whatever part of our lives are not in alignment with it. Yeah? That's a good thing. But a fourth thing that we can do is we can radicalize. We can radicalize. We can get crazy with it. We can get crazy with the word of God stirring inside of us. This word radicalize is a popular word in our culture, right? And what does it describe typically? People who turn terrorists, right? They're radicalized. They're radicalized. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of the devil stealing our words. I think Christians should be radicalized, don't you? I think we should be radicalized. I think that's always an option when the word of God comes to us, is we can get radical about it. We can be radicalized. And you know what our weapons are? Our weapons are love and grace and forgiveness. Let's go terrorize the world with love and grace and forgiveness. Let's terrorize the world with the good news that Jesus Christ died for everyone's sins. Let's radicalize. That's always the fourth thing we can do when the word of God comes to us. So many examples. are You know, we think about the whole concept of signs and wonders and the power of God. We want to see God move. And we preach that here. And we can reject it. We can just go, no. That's just stupid. You guys are nuts, all this shaking and stuff. Right? Or we can rationalize it and go, well, those things happened in Bible times, but at the death of the apostles, it ushered in a new age, and those things, it's a whole school of theology from the pit of hell called cessationism. And it's a rationalization of the clear teaching of Scripture. Or we can reconcile it into our lives. We can say, I want to be a person who, when the opportunity presents, that I'll be ready. I want to be a part of the move of God. Oh, we can radicalize. We can pray for people in the grocery store. We can go wherever we have an opportunity to lay our hands on people and see what God wants to do. We can radicalize. Generosity. The Bible's pretty clear on what we're supposed to be doing with our stuff. As Americans, we have so much of it. The Bible's pretty clear. God gives us ten. He wants one back. I ain't doing that. Forget that. I got bills. 
Well, that was an Old Testament rule that really doesn't apply in the age of grace. I know Jesus said it, but I'm still not buying it. Or we can reconcile. Yeah, all right, I'll do that. I'll write the check or I'll give the cup of cold water. I'll, I'll do that. Or we can radical. Say, my stuff is your stuff. We can hold everything we have with a loose hand. We can say, it's all God's stuff. I don't want to give you one back. I want to give you ten back. I'll write the check on the one, but the other nine is at your disposal. We could radicalize. What about being a bold witness? The Bible says that we must go out there and we must convey the gospel to people. I'm not doing that. Everybody has a right to believe what they want to believe. I'm not doing that. Well, you know, I know, but there are some in the church who are more gifted to do that than me, so I'm just going to let them do it while I do nothing. Or we can reconcile it. We can bring it into our lives. We can listen to the word of Peter who said that we should always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. We can look for opportunities. We can open our mouths when the time comes, right? We can convey a witness to the Lord. We can convey the words of the gospel as opportunity presents. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. Or we can radicalize. We can get crazy. We can tell everybody. Whenever the Lord stirs inside of you guys... He's calling you out of mediocrity into divine purpose. My experience has been the same as many of yours. That the level of divine purpose, after some space of time, becomes the new mediocre. And the Lord's always calling me to another level. This never quits! So what's he stirring inside of you? And what are you going to do about it? You're going to reject it? You're going to rationalize it, you're going to reconcile it, and you're going to radicalize. Let me tell you how you become a radical. You completely surrender to the stirring of God inside of you. You just say, I give up. I absolutely give up. Ah, wrong time, wrong place. You couldn't be wronger about picking me. But I feel it, I, I know it, i got to stop running from it. I want my journey to be from mediocrity to divine purpose. That's about surrender. Let me throw something out here. When I was in Nicaragua a few months ago with 19 of some of the most amazing people I, I know, we were crammed into a short bus. It was one of the short school buses that had some of the seats were missing in the back. It was, it was a little rugged, and there were 20 of us, and then we added about 40 more people. And so we were sitting. I, I had this much seat. I was hanging out of the aisle, and I was just hanging there and, you know, connecting with, kids around me, teenagers I was with, and uh, a small 
handicap was that we didn't speak each other's language, and yet somehow we connected. I'm sitting there, and we're going into Managua because we're taking them on the one a great treat in their life. We took them in to see Peter Pan at an actual theater in Spanish. <laughs> I was glad I pretty much knew the story. <laughs> and uh, it was an hour and a half bus ride. Karen says it was two hours. But we were sitting there going in, and our, our driver a big-haired Nicaraguan guy, loved Jesus with all of his life. He played worship songs really loud. Yeah, you're crowded in a can with twice as many people as you'd even be on the bus, and the music is boom, boom, boom. And every once in a while, there'd be like a Hillsong song, or it was all in Spanish, wasn't it, Tracy? It was all in Spanish, but every once in a while you could, I know this song. And so what happened? I was sitting back there with these teenagers, and they were like sitting up on the back of the seats and stuff so that everybody could fit. And they started singing these worship songs like they didn't care what anybody else thought. And then the gringos started singing in English. Are you are you feeling this? It was awesome. It was stunning to worship Jesus in two languages at the same time while hurling down the road toward Managua. And the Lord gave me a picture and a word right there. Because I'm kind of, I'm, I'm so into it, I'm, I'm trying not to let see, people see that I'm crying. Because it was that cool. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, you should do this. And so I've prayed through what that means. And here's what I know so far. That on Good Friday of this year, Three and a half weeks away. Starting at midnight, Good Friday morning. Every hour, there will be someone driving a car or a van or something leaving this parking lot with the worship music going. And you will come and you will get in that car. And we will do one loop of 270. The Lord gave Karen a phrase, we're going to pray the loop. We're going to pray the loop. Because I knew as we were traveling in that bus that there was anointing falling off both sides of that bus as we went. And so you're going to have an opportunity to decide if this is a stirring of God that you're willing to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning for if that's the time you sign up for. You get more details in the next couple of weeks. So I just want to lay that out to you now. That there are going to be 24 hours till 11 o'clock that night to complete. It takes about an hour to drive the loop. And every hour, another car or van will leave. Sometime in the next couple of weeks, I'll tell you about an amazing 
independent confirmation I got for that prophetically. But right now, just let the Lord fall on you with that word, and if you're filling it as a stirring, then you've got to start thinking about which of the four options you're going you're gonna to take, right? So, Father in heaven, bowing before you. Now we look to you as our, our Lord and as our King. And you know how, how much we want to get this right. You see our hearts today, and you know that this is important to us, to be men and women of obedience in all things. And I thank you, Lord, for the many examples of obedience that are, that are here. And uh, I just pray for that, Father. I pray your blessing on every person who's ever been obedient to your word and your way and how you fulfilled the promise. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And Lord, as we just come to this time of kind of decision and response in our gathering this morning, I pray that that your Holy Spirit will will feel very welcome to just move among us and to speak words to us or renew old words that have grown quiet. Um, We're all a little bit different than we used to be, and so maybe if you could say it a different way, we could hear it better. But I thank you for the examples of profound obedience that I've seen in this church over the years from men and women here. And and so we just pray, Father, that at this moment, you would feel free to come and, and speak. Speak from your word to your waiting people. In the name of Jesus.